Wow. Exclusive content. Are you excited? I'm excited. I feel like a stone cutter. We should have a secret handshake or something. Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. I thought I might kick off this new Patreon exclusive content with a little something that crosses all of the HGT disciplines, including the top secret one that nobody knows about yet. Unless you're listening to this in the future, in which case you do know about it. Uh, If that is the case, then I implore you not to travel back in time and ruin the secret for everyone else. Although I guess technically you are listening to it in the future, because I'm recording this now, and obviously you're listening to it not now, and... Look, that's as far into this routine as I can go before the estate of Mitch Hedberg starts coming at me. One time a guy handed me a picture of me and said, here's a picture of me when I was younger. Every picture is of you when you were younger. Here's a picture of me when I'm older. You son of a bitch. How'd you pull that off? Let me see that camera. So today's bonus content show is going to be all about history, mythology, and the human solipsist concept of time. So, pretty light. This is for the hardcore people who are willing to throw down their coin. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty. You guys come for the good stuff, and you're gonna get it. At its core, this particular segment is gonna be about why things are named like they are. Because there are a lot of names out there that we take for granted, And a lot of those names have some pretty cool backstories, which I really want to explore. So, no further ado, let's kick it off. Here we go. You probably know, I certainly hope that you know, that the heavenly bodies are named after figures from mythology. Of course, I'm talking local here. There are a lot more stars out there than there are figures in Greek and Roman mythology. There there are at least a hundred more stars than there are Greek mythological figures. Probably more. I haven't stopped to count them. So you guys know the main squad. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Poor old Pluto is no longer classified as a planet, but alright, let's throw that dog a bone and keep him on the list. Pluto. These are all figures from Roman mythology. Ave Caesar. But you all know that the Romans didn't come up with their own pantheon so much as they just copied something that already existed and put their own name on it, like Pepsi did to Coca-Cola, or Coca-Cola did to Pepsi. I can never remember which one came first. In this case, the Romans copied Greek mythology. So Mercury is Hermes, the god of messengers. Venus is Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Mars is Ares, the god of war. Jupiter is Zeus, the god of sliding into your DMs. Saturn is the Roman god of agriculture, but in Greek mythology, he's not a god at all. Saturn in Greek mythology is actually a titan, Cronus, who is the father of Zeus. Neptune is Poseidon, god of the sea. That's right, Neptune is the Roman god of the sea, not Caesar, Neptune. Uranus is weird because there's no direct Roman equivalent. Uranus was also not a god, the same way as Saturn or Cronus. But he wasn't a titan either. He actually came before either of them, and he's what's known as a primordial god, and he was the Greek representation of the concept of the sky. And finally, 
Pluto is Hades, god of the underworld. Name is Hades, lord of the dead. Hi, how you doing? And the moons of these planets also have their roots in Greco-Roman mythology. Neptune's moon, for instance, is Triton, who was the son of Poseidon. Similarly, the moons of Mars are named after the sons of Mars slash Ares. They're called Phobos and Deimos, fear and dread, respectively. It's where we get the term phobia, for instance. There's a, a theme going there. Pluto's moon, which is about the same size as Pluto and caused the whole planet not a planet debacle, Pluto's moon is called Charon, named after the ferryman who would escort souls across the river Styx. That's Charon with a hard k sound, so C-H-A-R-O-N. So it's not Sharon and it's not Charon, but Charon. One of them is the ferryman for the underworld, and the other tends to be the very concept of hell itself. Saturn has 82 moons. So we stopped trying to be thematic with that one, and we just started lobbing any old remaining mythological figures at those moons. So Saturn's just a grab bag of anything that was left over mythologically wise in the name department. So that explains the nomenclature behind the heavenly bodies of the solar system, but you'll note that there are three large emissions there. The sun, the moon, and the earth. Where do they fit in, and why don't they have names? Well, they kind of do and kind of don't. Have you ever wondered why the solar system is called the solar system and not the sun system? Because the sun does have a name, it's called Sol. The star itself, and the sun is a star like trillions of others in the galaxy, it's not special in that way. The sun has a name, and that name is Sol. If any astronomers happen to be listening in, yes, you're right, that's not technically correct, but it's close enough for the layman, and is this really the hill that you want to die on, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Well, if you don't know what it is, that's where your conversation should stop. So the sun is called Sol, and it's named after a god. Sun gods are nothing new. Most cultures in history have a sun god. In Egypt, they had two of them, Ra and Horus. Well, three if you want to throw in the Amarna Revolution and put Aten on that list, and you could make a strong argument for Amun. The Mesopotamians had Elagabalus, the Greeks had Helios, and the Romans had a figure known as Sol, or Sol Invictus, the Invincible Sun. So from the Greeks, we get things like heliocentrism, which is the theory that the Earth revolves around the Sun, and not t'other way round. Verily I declare that the Earth revolves around the Sun, and not t'other way round. Stop looking down my blouse, Copernicus. And from the Romans, we use sol as the root word for things like solar, as in pertaining to the Sun. So the Latin word sol got turned into the Proto-Germanic word sunon, around about the same time that Attila was hunting it up in Rome. And from Sunon, we got the Old English word Sunne, which became the modern sun. The moon, Earth's moon, has a similar story. The Greek goddess of the moon was Selene, which is also the alchemical name for silver. 
the Roman goddess of the moon, again straight up copying the Greeks, was Luna. So the Earth's moon has a name, and that name is Luna. And a quick aside here, because I have to do quick asides, there is technically a name for moon rocks. They're known as regolith. Any rock that we get from the moon is known as a regolith. Regos, the Greek word for rug, and lithos, the Greek word for stone. So regolith, it's literally rock blanket, as in the moon is wrapped in a rock blanket. The more you know. So how did Luna become moon, you might be asking? Well, actually, it's more correct to say how did the moon become lunar? Because we didn't always know about moons. Humans have known about the Earth's moon from the first ever time they craned their necks back at night, but it took a surprisingly long time for any of us to work out that it wasn't the only moon out there. Galileo was the first person to discover that our moon wasn't the moon, it was a moon. In 1610, he had a peek out of a telescope and took a look at Saturn and discovered four moons orbiting that planet, just like our moon orbits the Earth. He missed the other 78 moons that were floating around there, but it's still a pretty significant development because it was the first time we had proven that the moon, our moon, wasn't the only moon in the solar system. Huge deal back then. Like I said, Mankind has known about the moon since before mankind was mankind. Other species of Homo have known about it. I mean, it's pretty hard to miss. And one of the big things about the moon is that it is regular. The moon does its mooning on a schedule. It gets small, and then it gets big again, but the whole process is like clockwork. In fact, it takes about four weeks for the moon to cycle this way, and you can set your watch to it, or calendar at least, and most people in history often did. The modern word moon derives its roots from the old English word mona. Well, at least it does in English, but this is one of those rare words where you can take your pick throughout history and pick basically any culture ever and they all trace their way back to the same thing. In Proto-Germanic, it's menon, which is also the Saxon word for moon. There's the Frisian word mona, the Norse mani, the Danish man, which is said the same but spelt differently to the Dutch man. The Goths had mina, the Gaelics had me, Proto-Indo-European had menses, in Sanskrit it's masa, in Persian it's ma, Slavic, Mesishi, they all mean the same thing. But let's be classy here, let's be classical, let's go with Latin. In Latin, it was mensis. The Latin word mensis itself derives from the ancient Greek word metric, which you should recognize as meaning to measure something, as in the metric system. So in Latin, they took the Greek word for metric, and that was used to come up with a term that meant a period of time which is about 28 days long, or roughly four weeks. And the word they came up with was mensis. So mensis eventually became moon. And moon specifically means something that takes a cycle of the moon to complete. Four weeks, 28 days. You could call that a moon, or a moonth, 
or even a month. You see how that works? And it turns out that there's something else common to humans that takes about a month to cycle as well, which is why we have words like menstrual and menstruation, which also derive their root from the word mensis, because a woman's menstrual cycle roughly coincides with the moon. They're both about 28 days long, which is why the moon is traditionally associated with a goddess as opposed to a god, which brings us back to the Roman goddess of the moon, Luna. So the sun is Sol, and the moon is Luna, but what of the Earth? Well, that's where humans get lazy. Earth is Earth. It comes from the Old English Eartha, which itself comes from the Proto-Germanic Erde, and they all basically mean dirt. Just dirt. As in the Latin terra firma, solid ground. Earth. Dirt. So there's nothing particularly mystical going on there. But Earth does have another name. It's rarer, but this is a name for Earth if we were so inclined to use it. And this one does come from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, you've got the gods and the goddesses. They're the ones we know and love. Everyone's heard of them. We name planets after them. But before the gods came the titans. And these were like super gods. Zeus was the son of the titans Kronos and Rhea, for instance. But before even the titans, there were a bunch of super, super gods. And these were known as the primordial deities. They were the first beings to emerge out of the void of chaos. And they all represented fundamental aspects of the universe. So Uranus, remember him, he was the sky. There were others like Pontus, who was the ocean, and Tartarus, who was the underworld. And that's just a few of them. And one of them was named Gaia. Gaia, if you'll remember the intro sequence to Captain Planet and the Planeteers, Gaia was the spirit of the Earth and was played by Whoopi Goldberg. Gaia, the spirit of the Earth, can no longer stand the terrible destruction plaguing our planet. And Gaia is where we get words that relate to the Earth. So anything with geo in it, that comes from Gaia. Geology, the study of the Earth. Geography, the study of things on the Earth. Geometry, the study of how much Earth things take up. It all comes back to Gaia or Gaia. We're the Planeteers. You can be one too. Because saving our planet is the thing to do. It all comes back to the OG, the original gangster, the original Gaia. The power is yours. So at some point, humans worked out that Gaia revolved around Helios and not the other way around. And that happened well before Copernicus, thank you very much. I've covered this before in other shows, there's a bit of it in the Mongol series, and a lot of it when I talk about how Julius Caesar came up with the Julian calendar, so go and check out those shows for a more in-depth look. This is me being both lazy and promoting my back catalogue, it's called multitasking. Eventually, humans discovered that the Earth was going around the Sun, and that the Moon, at the same time, was going around the Earth. And these rotations happened with regularity. And when we noticed that they happened regularly, we could plan around that. We could use that to track time. And incidentally, the word time comes from the Proto-Germanic word timer, which means tide. 
So if you see that the tide has gone out and come back in, you can fairly surmise that a period of time has taken place. Tide, timer, time. And tides are caused by the moon, which is also cyclical, so it's all a rich tapestry. So a cycle of the moon is a month, or month. We're on board with that. But how about the length of time it takes to do a lap of the sun? Or the sun to do a lap of the earth? It doesn't really change if you think the sun goes around the earth. It's all swings and roundabouts. I mean, one is objectively correct, but it doesn't change the measurements here. Well, people have known for a long time that the planet has four distinct phases. Let's call them seasons. And yes, this is a very Antipodean view. Australia has at least eight documented seasons, but let's look at it from a Mesopotamian perspective. They have four. Spring is when all of the plants start to spring out of the ground. Seriously, that's exactly what it means. It comes from the Proto-Germanic springen, meaning, well, to spring out of the ground. This came about in about the 14th century, and before that, the season was known as Lent. Might sound familiar. The Christians still observe Lent as a religious festival, but they named it after the season and not t'other way round. And Lent shares all of the same etymological roots as the word length, because it's in spring that the days begin to lengthen. You get more length out of your day. Lent. Summer is surprisingly simple. We can trace that all the way back to the Sumerians with their word sama, which means half year. As in, half of the year is when it's warm, and the other half of the year is so cold that you want to kill yourself. I assume that everyone suffers from seasonal affective disorder like I do, so we all hate winter, right? So summer, the good half of the year. Autumn gets a bit wiggy. Autumn is a Latin word. Well, technically it's autumnus, and it means, well, it means autumn. That's it. We honestly can't go back any further than that. The Latin is the first time we have a word for the period between summer and winter. Everyone before then just sort of lumped it into summer. It has been known from time to time as harvest, as in get all of your perishables ready because winter is coming. And the Americans call it fall because... You know, I'm not even going to dignify that. Winter is another one of those Proto-Indo-Germanic words, and the root word is vend, or wet. So winter is the wet season. And it's also how people used to measure their age. You used to say someone's age by how many winters they had seen. So a seven-year-old would have seen seven winters. Most have seen too many winters, or too few. We didn't have years yet. How did we get years? I'm glad you asked. The ancient Persians, and you know how much I love those guys, the ancient Persians had a saying, and that saying was that if you had something bad happen, like a drought or a famine or a failing crop or something, it took a full cycle of seasons to come around and you get another go at it and everything's sort of all right again. And the word they used for this was Dusi Yaram, 
and Dusi Yaram literally meant bad time, as in how long it took for a bad season to come around and be potentially a good one again. You had a period of bad time. Dusi Yaram, Yaram, Yiram, Yeah, Yeah. You see how we do. So we have our year, and that's divided into four seasons. And Four Seasons is the car park in which Rudy Giuliani refuses to acknowledge the results of the election. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. Four Seasons, which are in turn divided into 12 months. And that's when it gets tricky. Because there weren't always 12 months. In fact, ancient calendars used to be a bit of a mess, and that's why a guy named Julius Caesar took it upon himself to fix the whole situation and came up with what was known as the Julian calendar, which was eventually adopted into the Gregorian calendar, which is the one we use today. And if you'd like to know more about that, then you just got to go and hit play on the calendar battle, because I go into it at great depth. It's an awesome show. Have fun. We've got years, we've got seasons, we've got months. Can we divide that down even further? Well, yes we can. Because the most simple way one recognizes the passage of time is through the cycle of day and night. Half of the time you can see, and half of the time you can't. It's one of the more obvious forms of chronography. Oh, and by the way, Kronos was one of those Greek primordial deities, like Uranus, and his domain was time. So Kronos was time, and that's where we get words like chronography, dealing with time. So the ancient Mesopotamians worked out that there were 365 cycles of these days and nights in a year, which is a pretty clever thing to do. I know there's no way I'd have figured that out, but they managed it back in the Bronze Age. And they called them days. Day comes from, again, a proto-Germanic word that means burning or shining, which is what the sun tends to do. Unless you're in England. So you've got your days... How do you divide these 365 days into more accurate slices? Like, if someone asked me what time my show was, and I say, not now, that leaves a lot of ambiguity. And we're going for precision here. This is going to get a little bit mathematical, but you'll appreciate the journey. Trust me. This is where the Babylonians come into it. And the Babylonians were fascinating when it comes to maths. Well, actually, this all predates the Babylonians considerably. We're going back at least to the ancient Sumerians, which is about 6,000 years ago. But the Babylonians were the first people to patent it. And like Charles Darrow, Nikki Tesla, and Alexander Graham Bell will tell you, it's not enough to come up with the idea. You have to be the first one to the patent office. Ever hear of a guy called Elisha Gray? Exactly. I've covered Babylonian mathematics before, and I'm probably going to do it again, but to save us from retreading old ground, let's just say that the Babylonians invented number wang. One. 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 Two. One. Uh, one. Eight. One. That's wanga! <laughs> oh, bad luck, Julie. You've been wanging up. But Simon, you are today's number wang. Babylonia had a sexagesimal counting system. What does that mean? That's number one. Well, we, and by we, I mean most people in the world today, we use a decimal counting system. Deci, 10. We count in base 10. 
10 is nice and easy to do in our heads. It's clean. But it isn't the most flexible of systems. 10 plus 10, 20. 10 times 10, 100. Easy. But 10 doesn't really play well with other numbers. It seems like it does, but it doesn't. 10 divides into itself, obviously, and it divides into 1 because all numbers do. It divides into 2 5 times and 5 2 times, but that's it. That's where 10 puts up its feet and relaxes and says, fuck it, I'm out. That's number one. We like those decimals. The Babylonians were sexagesimal, which meant they counted not in base 10, but base 60. 60 is a much more useful number. 60, for anyone that doesn't want to crunch the number, divides into 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, and 60. And three of those are prime numbers. If you want to be a mathemagician, 60 has some real chops. And if you want to get real cute, you can multiply 60 by 6, and you get 360, which is how many days are in a year, pre-Julius Caesar, and exactly how many degrees are in a circle. So the Babylonians knew how to make numbers dance. And they're the reason why our days are divided up the way they are. And here's where it gets cool. So for day-to-day counting, they use their fingers, like pretty much everyone in history has ever done always. But they had a really cool way of doing it. So we teach our kids to count to 10 by counting on their hands. And that's rather intuitive. We've got eight fingers and two thumbs. It seems pretty tailor-made for a decimal counting system, right? Well, the ancient Mesopotamians had a super funky way of finger counting. They didn't count with their digits. They counted the joints in their fingers, and they used their thumb to keep the place. So you'll notice that each of your fingers has three segments, barring some horrible accident that you may have had in the past. So you start with the pinky, and you use your thumb to count the segments on your, on your pinky. So one, two, three segments. Then the ring finger, one, two, three, and so on. And you've just turned your hand into an abacus. So instead of counting to five on one hand, you can count to 12, which, and let me check my math here. Yep, that's more than five. This is called a duodecimal system, or two and 10, which is 12. And 12 goes into 60 five times. You can see how all of this starts to come together. So you're an ancient Babylonian, and you want to divide your days into something easier to digest than a whole day. You figure that half of a day is, you know, day, and the other half of it is night. Or if you want to get all poetic about it, half of it belongs to the sun god, and half of it belongs to the underworld. And you realize that you've got two hands. You have two separate ways of counting to 12. So if you were an ancient Babylonian, it made the utmost sense to you to divide a day into two sets of 12 hours, day and night, totaling 24. For the Babylonians, this was completely intuitive. Now, the ancient Greeks had a group of minor goddesses who were called the Horai. And these were the goddesses of the different seasons. And one of their roles was they helped to portion out time. And they were known as the Horai, or Ori, or hours. So portioning of time became hours. And now you've got 24 of them. Now, you think you're sitting pretty here, dividing your days up into 
24 hours, and it's all well and good, but can we get even more precise than that? Can we go even deeper? Of course we can. So we go back to our old friend, the number 60. Can we fit him into an hour? Yes, we can. So now an hour is made of 60 smaller bits of an hour. But what do we call them? What do we call these 60 smaller bits? Well, in Latin, if you wanted to describe a little bit of something, you would use the term minutia. And we still use the term minutia today for some things, and the prefix mini comes from minutia. So a smaller portion of an hour became a minutia, which became a minute. And a minute is pretty precise. It's accurate to the minute. But can we inception this? How deep can we go? Can we divide by 60 again? An hour is now divided into minutes. Can we divide those minutes a second time? Of course we can. And that's how you get seconds. It's the second division of an hour. So there you have it. A show about why all of our temporal measurements are called what they are. It's about damn time. Thank you all so, so much for being among the super, super, super awesome patrons of this show. It means the absolute world to me. And thank you even more for indulging these random ideas and fits of passion that strike me. As much as I love HGT proper, I love even more being able to spontaneously break out into fits of fancy, and you guys are the ones making it happen, which makes you super, super special. Shine on, all of you, you're amazing people. All that being said, until next time. Someone once told me time is a flat circle.